0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 54 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. After years of being with Jesus, the Master finally asks his students, Who do you say I am? This question remains the most pressing for anyone who would follow Jesus of Nazareth. How we respond becomes the foundation on which the church is built or the church is scorned. This, what I'm about to show you, is a photo of Francis Pinkovich. Right, there he is. Does he bear resemblance to anyone? You know, after a stint in World War II, Pinkovich decided to start his own religion, which is something one does from time to time. Did that strike you as strange? Eric he made a face when he might have been talking to someone else. In April nineteen forty eight, he stated, and I quote (laughs) I may as well say it, I am Christ. I am the new Messiah. He also claimed to have led a convoy of rocket ships to Earth from the extinct planet Neophrates in 1951, and then he legally changed his name to Krishna Vinta. Interesting. Here is a man called Sun Moon. Maybe you've heard of this one. He's a Korean figure who also claimed to be the second coming of Jesus. He founded something called the Unification Movement, whose followers are still called Moonies. Um, Here's Jim Jones, uh, more of an infamous figure. He orchestrated and led a mass suicide in which 909 people, 304 of them were children, drank uh, Flavor-Aid, not Kool-Aid, laced with cyanide. Jones preached that he was the reincarnation of Jesus, but also Gandhi, Buddha, and many others. Some of them I hadn't even heard of. He's like the clown car of reincarnation, apparently. (laughs) David Koresh, Um, didn't just have awesome hair. Uh, He was also someone who claimed to be the Lamb of God and started a cult based on his uh, alleged identity. This dude, who I just learned about today, actually, A.J. Miller, is an Australian fellow who right now, as we speak, leads a cult claiming to have been in his previous life Jesus of Nazareth. His wife is also called Mary Magdalene. Why do people claim to be Jesus? Is it for uh, power or control or acclaim or admiration or money or, or for love? Are they liars? Are they mentally ill? Are they just sinister or maybe kind of eccentric? Are they all of these things or some combination of these things? And really, what does it mean to claim to be Jesus? The language they use more often than not is that they claim to be the second coming of Christ, to carry Jesus' mantle, to continue Jesus' work. Which is weird, because even amongst those who follow Jesus, there remains ongoing dispute about who Jesus was and is and what exactly he came to do and will do in the future. And sure, you can pick on modern disciples of Jesus for these debates that we have and all the disagreement that we have, but Jesus' earliest followers, his closest friends, struggled to understand who he really was and perhaps more importantly, what that meant for the world. So if you're just joining us, we've been in an ongoing, and I mean ongoing series, unpacking an ancient biography of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew. And we take this pretty seriously because if we base the entirety of our lives around the teaching and lifestyle of a man who lived and taught in the first century, a long time ago, Um, In a different part of the world, within a radically different culture, speaking a different language, several different languages actually, well, then we probably have some work to do to actually uncover what's in this book. So let's keep at it. Let's read tonight from Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. You guys all right? Great, thank you. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite monikers for himself. Verse 14, they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples and close friends, answered, you are the Messiah Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So this text, eight verses is the single most discussed text in the Gospel of Matthew, at least at a scholarly level. For the first time in Matthew's biography of Jesus, 16 chapters in now, it's finally confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. So before we go on, let's talk a bit about the word Messiah. Now that word, Messiah, is here, the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, and it's elsewhere translated as Christ. Literally, it means anointed one which isn't a title that was specific to Jesus necessarily, all of Israel's kings were called Mashiachs or anointed ones. But over time, the word came to be more used and understood as a reference to the anointed one. Israel had a promised king who would usher in a kingdom that would never end. And this is where the story of the Hebrew scriptures had been moving all along to God's redemption of the world through Israel and specifically through a coming king, the Mashiach, the anointed one. So the term Christ was a political term, and it was a title, not a name, which is why I prefer the title Messiah, um, To what I would argue is a common misuse of the word Christ, where we use it kind of like it's Jesus' last name. And don't get me wrong, Jesus is called the Christ, but the word essentially means King. So when Jesus constantly asks the people he heals or encounters not to go around spreading the word, as he does with his own disciples at the end of this story, it's not because Christ is his last name, or even because Christ is some kind of spiritual title per se, at least not the way we think of spiritual titles. It's because, pardon me, um, when you claim to be king, it's a very dangerous thing if there already is a king. So when Jesus uh, asks them, "Do do not tell anyone that I'm the Messiah, he heals someone, they're like, hey, it seems like you must be the one that we've been waiting for. He says, don't tell anyone yet. It's a dangerous thing for word to get out and spread around that there's a guy going around claiming to be the Mashiach, the Christ, the coming king. "...especially given the widely held expectation that Israel's coming king would be a military leader who would initiate war with Rome, overthrow them, annihilate all pagans or non-Jewish people, and usher in an ongoing era of Israeli global um, domination." So this conversation between Jesus and Peter takes place at, uh, at Caesarea Philippi, the story says, which is the northernmost border of Israel, if you're looking at it on a map. So the story of this conversation takes place where Israel ends, so to speak, and where the world beyond Israel begins. And scholars suspect Matthew mentions that specifically for narrative impact. The kingdom that Jesus came proclaiming is going to burst forth from the confines of Israel and sweep over the entire world. And it's not just that. The newest temple in that region had been built in recent memory to honor the newest god in the Gentile pantheon, who was Caesar, who was actually a human king. He was worshipped as both king and under the specific title, son of a god. So Herod the Great, if you know like the dude from the Christmas story, (laughs) he commissioned the temple to score points with Caesar Augustus, and the city itself was named after Caesar and his son Philip, i.e. Uh, Caesarea Philippi. So the location as a setting for this particular story is already loaded with symbolism and subversive inference. Standing there on the border of Israel and the world, in the presence of the acknowledged King who claims to be the Son of God, Jesus is recognized as the true King, the true and only Son of the one true God. Now, up until now, Jesus has sought to keep the full breadth of his identity a secret. For the last 16 chapters, Jesus has not been ham-fisted or explicit in the traditional sense about who he really is. Instead, he really prefers symbolism. He demonstrates his identity in symbolic gestures and in the fulfilling of scriptures. He goes around doing the kinds of things that the Hebrew scriptures claim the Messiah would do. In fact, in one story, John the Baptist sends someone to ask Jesus, point blank, listen... Are you the guy or not? And if you remember, Jesus answers not with an explicit yes, but by saying, go tell John what you see me doing. So Jesus hasn't even quizzed his own disciples about his true identity. Instead, he's invited them to be with him, follow me, live with me, learn from me, see the things I do, the way I talk, the way I live. And then at this point, years later, when they are as far away from things as they can get on the outskirts of Israel in secret, he asked them to speak his identity out loud for the first time. He asked them to talk about who he really is. In his commentary on this passage, Frederick Dale Bruner writes this, The doctrine of the person of Christ is as delicate as it is crucial. It's not a teaching Jesus prematurely or precipitately force-fed disciples. Jesus preferred first to teach the kingdom of God and to heal, and so to bring his disciples gradually to their conclusions about him. But notice something fascinating. In the first line of tonight's story, Jesus doesn't begin by asking for the disciples' perspective. He asks about the opinion of who? People, right. The people. Some commentators see this as kind of like a pejorative thing. Who does the world say I am, in other words? Or not my close friends, not my true followers, but the crowds, the outsiders. Who do they say I am? And the disciples answer Jesus by saying that the world has a kind of superstitious view about him. He could be a dead guy reincarnated, which is a popular thing to say about yourself, apparently, based on the people we talked about earlier. Um, Maybe he's Elijah, who's a prophet from the Hebrew scriptures taught ascended into God's realm without dying. It's a really weird story. Maybe he's Elijah come back, or maybe he's one of the other prophets who was dead, but is back somehow. And notice, None of these takes on Jesus are that he's a total fraud or a nutcase. They don't say, like, well, who's the, what does the world say about me? And they're like, that you're nuts, that you're off your rocker, and you don't have anything true to say. But at the same time, are they accurate? No? Michael Dumont, you made a face like you're like, well, is he Elijah? No, right? No, he's not Elijah. Okay. One commentator put it this way. It is possible for men to have good thoughts on Christ and yet not right ones A high opinion of him, and yet not high enough. What's right about these theories is that they place Jesus in the prophetic tradition of Israel. And the prophets were, for the most part, if you know those stories pretty wild, incendiary figures. They warned of impending judgment. They used all kinds of shocking artistic symbolism to describe the dangers of sin and the need to return to faithfulness to the God of Israel. And that sounds a lot like Jesus, right? He does stand in that tradition with a long line of prophets, but he's not reincarnated John the Baptist, or he's not an interdimensional Elijah or whatever. So the world is still wrong. They've got part of it right, but they're wrong. And the story goes on. Something intimate happens, Jesus asks his disciples, point blank, over and against the world, the people, the crowds, who do you say I am? And and realize how much hangs on this moment. After years with Jesus, seeing him do incredible things, hearing his teaching day in and day out, learning his way of life, tracking with some of his inferences and missing other ones altogether... And he's not once, up to this point, asked him for an honest confession of who they believe him to be, to really be anyway. And then the day comes, who does the world say I am? And they answer, oh, they have lots of crazy theories about who you might be. And then Jesus says, okay, what about you? Who do you say I am? And the way he asks is intense. Scholars point out that Jesus uses something called the living historical present tense, which is a fancy way of saying that Matthew, the author, is emphasizing the question. He's underlining it, italicizing it. But you, who do you say I am? Because on this answer hangs everything. Bruner puts it like this. Ministers of the gospel and indeed all Christian workers should be examined in particular about their view of Jesus. Since this is the decisive matter and determines more than any other conviction the shape and content of one's whole ministry. So Peter answers, and what he says is beautiful. You are the Mashiach, Christos, the King, the Son of the living God. And notice the wording here. You are the Messiah. Scholars point out that Peter, who, like the other disciples, had been previously depicted as kind of like bumbling and unsure, even called little faith more than once. And here he's kind of experienced a change. He does not say, I believe you are the Messiah. He does not say, for us, You are the Messiah. These kinds of statements, which previously wouldn't seem far-fetched for someone like Peter, would infer, well, we think, but we could be wrong, or is this a test? I don't know. Or, well, we believe this, but it, it may not be true for everyone else. Peter's declaration is beautifully simple and boldly decisive. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Says one commentator, it is where this confession is gladly believed, with the heart and so confessed with the mouth that a church arises and lives. You, Jesus, are God's anointed king, the promised and long-awaited Messiah. One scholar I read this week translated Peter's confession into modern English this way, you are the answer, the point, the last word, the meaning, you are it. Peter has come to an important, the important understanding, but he doesn't understand all of it, not yet. We'll talk about that more next week as Matthew's biography continues. But here, Peter knows who Jesus is. He is Israel's anointed king. And more than that, he's the son of the God who stands over and against all other gods. Now, there's a small debate here as to what Peter means exactly by, quote, son of the living God. A few scholars believe that this title might just be a Hebrew parallelism, meaning it's a synonym for Messiah. He's just saying the same thing twice. But some other scholars believe it means something more, that this is an acknowledgement that Jesus is more than just a man. Uniquely of and from God the Father. Now, to be clear, Peter doesn't mean what we mean now when we say Son of God. Not yet, anyway. But he gets that there's something about Jesus, something more to Jesus. So Peter understands the first first half of what we call the gospel, the pronouncement of the kingship of Jesus. He gets who Jesus is but he has yet to learn how the kingship of Jesus will be realized. More on that next week. So Jesus celebrates his friend. Peter says, you're the Messiah, son of the living God, and Jesus is like, well done. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And here Jesus is emphasizing an incredible, romantic dimension of the gospel, which is that God the Father has not only given the gift of Jesus, But he has made it possible for us to receive that gift. Now, some theological traditions take this line of thinking to mean that God reveals the truth of Jesus to some people, but not to other people. Peter, but maybe not someone else. In other words, God picks But no one in the early church understood texts like this to mean anything like that. Instead, they celebrated that though all people are given the freedom to accept or to reject the kingship of Jesus, that we can do so at all is a sheer gift from God. The idea is that though we were all dead in the language of the scriptures, dead in our sin, God woke us up and made us able to choose. And we didn't break into God's house and steal the gift, nor did we earn it, nor does God offer it, only to a select few of His choosing. In His incredible generosity, the gift of Jesus is offered to all, and it is only by the staggering kindness of God that this is so. This is one dimension of what the New Testament authors call grace. And Jesus tells the man formerly known as Simon, now you are Peter, which means a rock, in fact, I read um, once called this week who said it's probably most like the English nickname Rocky, which totally distracted me for all the rest of my studying because I could now only see Jesus talking to Rocky Balboa, and I kind of liked it. I was like, oh, this is even more inspiring. Um, and he says, so you are Peter, you are a rock or a stone, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades or death will not overcome it. Now, what the heck does Jesus mean by renaming Simon all of a sudden as a rock and promising to build his church on that rock? Was Peter personally going to become the progenitor of the very thing we're doing right now, the church? Or is this more of a reference to the confession of Peter launching the idea of the church? Well, it's kind of both. In Acts, which is a sequel to Luke's gospel, which was sort of co-authored by Peter, Peter becomes the one who brings the message of Jesus to the Gentile people, fulfilling the Old Testament promise that the redemption of the world would come through Abraham's people first and then go out into the rest of the world. But this massive moment where someone accepts, believes, and proclaims the truth of who Jesus is becomes the foundation on which we continue to stay more than 2,000 years later. And notice, who does Jesus say will be the one to build the church? Anyone? You can look down and cheat if you want. Who does Jesus say will build the church? He will, exactly. Even if Peter um, and his confession are the foundation of this whole thing, Jesus is the sole builder. And Jesus says one of the most bad out things in the whole gospel, not even the gates of death will overcome the church. Hades here, as some of your Bibles translate the word, is a reference to the place and the power of death as a concept. So Jesus is building up to a fundamental truth of what we call Christianity, that the answer to death will not be reincarnation, nor immortality, nor passing from physical life into some kind of spiritual plane of existence. The answer will be resurrection. Disciples of Jesus, the church, will enter into Hades or the realm of death, but they will not be overcome by it. One translation of this promise is, and the doors of the world of death will not be stronger than the church. Again, this from Bruner. Historically, the church has understood these death gates in a variety of ways, as vice or sin, and the doctrines of heretics, as the torment and promise of the church's persecutors, as the powers of death with which the end-time church must contend in her struggle to be faithful and living or as the powers of death that believers at the great resurrection will surmount. R.T. France adds this, "'The gates thus represent the imprisoning power of death. Death will not be able to imprison and hold the church of the living God. The imagery is of death being unable to swallow up the new community which Jesus is building. It will never be destroyed.'" And notice that Jesus' intention is to build for himself a church, not a series of disparate churches. I will build, Jesus says, one people of one faith. And here we are to this very day. Jesus' commission of Peter goes on. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now this part seems a bit tricky, so let's unpack it a bit further. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus will give Peter? If you keep reading Peter's story, at the conclusion of the Gospels, he goes on to proclaim the kingship of Jesus to other Jewish people, and then to Samaritan people, and then to Gentile people. And this is essentially Peter using the keys that were given to him by Jesus. He's saying, I know the way. Let me open the doors of truth so that you can come into the kingdom. But then Jesus goes on about whatever you bind and whatever you loose. Scholars argue that another way of understanding those terms would be by replacing loose with permit and bind with forbid. Whatever you permit And whatever you forbid. Now, this would be the traditional rabbinic understanding of both those terms, not some kind of crazy made up thing. Meaning, go with these keys and open truth to the world. Teach them what I taught. Teach them the things to do, according to the Sermon on the Mount, and the things that bring life to the fullest. And teach them not to walk in the ways of evil that lead to death. Teach them what is, in other words, forbidden. It's really as simple as saying, teach them what to do and what not to do according to the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus. When Jesus says that whatever Peter loses and binds on earth will be similarly similarly done in heaven, he's reminding Peter and the church, us, that when we open the kingdom to others, we have no less than God himself standing behind and for us. This commission, in other words, has been ratified by God himself. The idea isn't that Peter or we get to call shots and then God has to honor the shots, but that when we stand on this foundation of the steady, unflinching declaration of Jesus is Lord, then Jesus will use us to build his church. And when we teach others to follow and obey the way of Jesus, we do so by the empowerment and with the support of God himself. Now, eventually... This moment in human history, this exchange of words between Jesus and Peter, would become a divisive subject around which Protestants and Catholics have some of their stronger disagreement. Uh, The Second Vatican Council in 1967 formally declared that, and I quote, "...our Lord made Peter alone the rock and key bearer of the church." So the Roman pontiff then to Catholics is the successor to Peter, But the early church believed, as did the Reformers and subsequent Protestant disciples of Jesus, of which were part of the same tradition, that these keys, this commission, it was given to Peter and to all those who would operate and lead in the way of Jesus from then on out. And how did all of this come to be? This incredible moment, a single scene of dialogue that really happened, actually took place in human history, and that we're still discussing centuries upon centuries later, it happened because Jesus invited Peter to follow him, and Peter accepted the invitation. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas notes this, Simon does not learn that Jesus is the Messiah by some intuitive or mystical mode of knowing. Rather, Simon learns that Jesus is the Messiah because he obeyed Jesus' command to be his disciple. It's really that simple. Okay, we're almost done, but before we sing again, I want us to consider uh, a few things about this text. The first is the question of what builds up the church. Now, to get this out of the way, I have made absolutely no you know, secret of my intense disdain for the kind of former Christian groupthink trend that seeks to, you know, via podcasts and tweets and thin, airy, bestseller books to deconstruct and dismantle this thing that we often call Christianity. For more on my frustration with this, see, you know, 90% of my entire library of teachings. But listen, one of the reasons these jaded former church-going podcasters so perturbed me is because anyone can bail on the church and stand at a distance and pick on it. Cynicism is the path of least resistance. I spent many years uh, living in a van, traveling for most of every year from city to city playing music, and there was a season in which, for one reason or another, I don't remember what prompted it. A few of us decided that we were going to get healthy and exercise and work out, you know, and diet together, and we did. Five or six nights a week, we worked out no matter where we were, how late it was, we ran, we held one another accountable, we ate, you know, good stuff. All that stuff. When one dude, when we were like, hey, should we do this? You know, some people were in, some people were out. One dude was an immediate hard pass. Not for me. I'm not doing it. And we didn't give him a hard time, as I recall anyway. Um, we, we just went on with the plan. That's fine. We, we didn't expect you would join us. Anyway, that's probably what we said. But then this other dude, with some regularity, would kind of drift into our general vicinity as we were exercising or working out. Or, and he'd be like eating from a bag of chips or something. And he would critique our every move. He would say, that's not a real push-up. Or like, well, that's, the, that's all the pull-ups you can do. Or something like that. Or he'd find problems in our meal plan. Oh, that really has this in it. Or he'd have reasons why our cardio was no good or wasn't going to work. And, and maybe he was right. We didn't know what the heck we were doing. But I'm sure many of you have experienced this in any unconventional lifestyle decision that you've, intemp- you've attempted in your life. If you try to change something like, the way you shop, or the way you eat, or if you say, you know what, I think I'm going to stop buying clothes made by slaves, or I'm going to stop buying food that destroys creation. If you want to get healthy, or if you're like, I'm going to draw boundaries around certain relationships, or I'm going to make amends with certain people in my life, there are inevitably some people who are supportive, which is great, or, or maybe there's some who are indifferent, they don't care, maybe some who are opposed, but quietly so, but there are others who, though they are completely unwilling to attempt the feat themselves, need you to know how poorly it's going, to find a hole somewhere, anywhere, and to pry it wide so that you can see that it's not going to work. And these hip... Trendy podcasters and social media personalities who stand at a distance and wag their enlightened finger at the church are hilarious because they point out problems that we've known about for centuries as if they're the first to uncover this damning evidence about Christianity. They're like, hey, there are hypocrites in the church and we're like, oh my God, we had no idea. We'll close the whole thing down tomorrow. I guess it's over. Or they're like, hey, this Bible is confusing and parts of it are like hard to understand and people use it poorly to do bad things. I'm like, no, since when? Since when have they been doing that? I had no idea. Anyone can do this. Anyone can stand at a distance and be like, this sucks about it, this sucks about it. And they have been doing it for centuries upon centuries. And don't get me wrong. None of that gets the church off the hook. When disciples of Jesus have modeled hypocrisy rather than faithfulness, or when they've used the scriptures to do evil rather than good, this is an egregious offense to God, and the church will be judged for those things. It is to be taken seriously and addressed and dealt with in open, vulnerable sincerity. Not dismissively, not with secrecy, not with deception. But then... Like a family, reeling from tragedy or even moral fallout, we have to pick up the pieces and carry on as a family. Anyone can critique and deconstruct the church, and the church is often in need of critique, and it has been throughout church history, but it takes bold faithfulness and resolve to embody a better way. Now, This isn't anything about turning a blind eye to hypocrisy, putting up with sin, but it's about meeting the brokenness of the church together as a family and pursuing healthiness and healing under the lordship of Jesus, not outside of it. Now, next week we'll talk more about the unexpected destination to which Jesus' kingship and discipleship to Jesus, for that matter, leads inevitably. But for now, in the context of this this teaching. Notice that something simple and beautiful takes place in this really short conversation. Jesus asks, hey, who does the world say I am? And for us, the answer might be something like, oh, the world says Jesus is a wise teacher. Or they say he's a benevolent sage with only words of love, nothing to say about judgment or sin or hell. Or maybe he's none of those things. He's like a liar. He's a fraud. Maybe he's a figment of our imagination. He's, uh, you know, a, a manufacturing by swindlers. And that would be how we might answer. You know, like, I don't hear anyone say Jesus is Elijah (laughs) anymore. I hear lots of other types of things about him. And imagine that he asks us, we say that, and then Jesus says, okay, well, who do you say I am? And then Peter, in this story, he answers not with a profoundly detailed, doctrinal statement on the personhood of Jesus, but by saying really simply, you are the king. In essence, you are the person you've been claiming to be by the things that you do. I think that if you talk to various people in your life who sincerely follow Jesus about why they do it, you'll find that you hear less about like a great sermon they heard once upon a time or the moral track record of the church that will likely not be in there or even convincing philosophical arguments and the historical veracity of the new testament per se instead you will probably if you ask someone who's been following for jesus or following jesus for a long time with faithfulness you'll likely hear about the person of jesus people who continue to follow jesus faithfully year after year season after season of life through joy and into suffering they'll probably tell you they do that because they know Jesus. In my own story, I can point to all kinds of orbiting contributive factors. The faith of my parents, my upbringing, those were contributive. Uh, Peers, certain people in my life, circumstances that came along, books that I've read, certainly teachings that I've heard, absolutely. Conversations that I've had with wise people. But these are more like footnotes in a story about a young man who met Jesus of Nazareth and who came to believe the things he said were true and who loves him, and who wants desperately to know him better every day of his life until he dies and into the age to come. So when I pray for my kids day after day, every night before they go to sleep, I'm not praying that they come to faith, which is something I, I pray for every single day. I don't pray that they come to faith so that they can lead awesome lives and be prosperous or they can be blessed or that they'll be moral or ethical or so that they can avoid hell. I pray that they will know Jesus even better than I know him. To see in their minds and feel in their hearts the kindness of his face and the power of his words and the gentle way that he leads and corrects, the authoritative way that he commands, the awesome power he holds over evil, the depth of intimacy and knowing him and being known by him and the way he loves like no other person or thing can. When you come to know Jesus to believe he is who he says he is, and to walk with him on the road of discipleship, you are imbued with the keys to the kingdom of God. And you are entrusted to fling wide the doors of truth to the people in your life, in your family, in your spheres of influence, your circles of relationship. And maybe you'll do that with casual conversations, or with philosophical arguments, or links to podcasts, or a copy of a book, or you know, a sermon, or something like that. Those are all great things. And they all help sincerely. I believe that they do. But you will also do it Inviting them into, inviting them into that which has so changed your story forever, to follow Jesus and to practice His way of life and what it means to know Him. To call on this power and authority, you will draw from what you know to be true of Jesus, who He is, what He's like and the way He talks. And the way he loves you. And you will stand firm within the community of God's people, never on your own. This is the foundation on which Jesus builds the church, and it will not die. These are the keys with which we have been entrusted. And we share a responsibility to love Jesus' church. The scriptures call the church the bride of Jesus, which I think is beautiful. Do you see how intimately Jesus loves his church? And it falls on us not to join the rabble of naysayers who stand at a distance to condemn Jesus' bride, to call her ugly, to hurl slander at her like heavy stones. Because even if the bride of Jesus is a broken and at times adulterous lover, he still loves her. And we honor the bride of Jesus not by bringing her to ruin, but with covenant faithfulness. Because as problematic as the church can be, there is no other way to follow Jesus. For all our foolishness and stumbling and sloppiness and even at times horrifying evil, the church has not been swallowed up in death. No amount of podcasters or cynics will bring her to ruin. We can't even do it from the inside, and at times it seems like we're trying our best. Because the truth of Jesus' person resonates so deeply throughout the heart of humanity that here we are still, which seems so bizarre to me. It's weird that thousands of years after this one conversation that we believe actually took place, here we are. And all throughout the world in developed nations and undeveloped nations in privilege and in poverty amongst the educated and the uneducated the way of Jesus continues to proliferate the, content, the kingdom continues to grow why? because we're not doing it Jesus the one we know and love is faithful to his promises and his promise that he, was that he would build his church amen Lord Jesus continue to build her may we be for you an unworthy but grateful foundation. Jesus is the King. Let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to come and remind us of this truth. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Van City financially at vancitychurch/give.